Well, if you have your Bibles, open up to John chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible with you, there's a pew Bible, or there may be one probably within a few steps of you, so feel free to grab one of those and open it up as we continue our study through John. We're going to look at John chapter 4. We're going to look at verses 43 to 54. So we're going to finish up. Remember, if you have no idea where the Gospel of John is, that is okay. Feel free to use the table of contents. It's not a sin to use it. So if it was, they wouldn't put it in there. We're going to be in the New Testament. So you go to New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. And remember, the Gospels say someone is here. The Old Testament says someone is coming. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John say someone is here right now. The whole rest of the New Testament from Acts onward says someone's coming again. And who is that someone? Jesus Christ, the Messiah. And so let's look at John chapter 4, starting in verse 43 this morning. And while you're turning there, I want to tell you a story that happened while we were in seminary when my son was just a little infant. We lived in Charlotte, and he got sick and ran a big fever in the middle of the night. Many of you may have had a similar experience with a little infant that you had. It's super scary. And we called the 24-7 nurse line because obviously our pediatrician's office was closed in the middle of the night. And we were seeking guidance on what to do. Like, should we go? Is this bad enough? Should we go to the ER? Should we give medicine? If so, what and how? You know, just that moment where you're scrambling in the middle of the night trying to bring some sort of comfort to your little one. And also just in that moment really not knowing exactly what to do. And the nurse told us that even though the fever was pretty high, it wasn't high enough to go to the ER. And so, number one, we were like, that's pretty amazing in the sense of these little ones are pretty much indestructible, which is pretty amazing. But she said, just keep an eye on it. Let us know if it goes up. But what we want you to do is just give him some children's Tylenol regularly. Try to comfort him. Keep watch over him. And so that's what we did. But I remember to this day, and this has been a while ago, I remember holding him and just feeling that massive heat radiating off of him. I was in his nursery in the glide rocker, and just it's like holding a massive hot potato. I mean, just I could feel the heat just radiating off of him. And I felt him shivering because he was so hot. He was having chills. It was kind of that, I don't know how that works, but he was shaking. And so I'm sitting here holding my son. He's burning up hot. I can feel him quaking in my arms. And I remember just sitting in that glide rocker, just pleading with God to give it to me. Just pleading with God. God, please help. Lord, I will take it if you give it to me. Just give it to me, Lord. Let me have it. I know what to do with it. Please, Lord, please just give it all to me so that my son can be better. But Lord, please, just please be with him. Please be with us. I remember that feeling of just helplessness. There's nothing I could do. There's nothing I could do except just sit there and hold him. And we've all felt this way for caring for someone in our family who may be sick. You feel just helpless to do anything yourself, and you have to rely upon the wisdom of others and trust that they know how to treat it themselves. You get to that moment where you say, look, I've kind of run out of what I know how to do, and so I'm coming to you and asking for help, and you have to trust Him. It's hard. As we read this passage this morning in John 4, I want you to carry that feeling with you into this text. 
I think oftentimes we read passages in the Bible and we kind of we kind of divorce the humanity dripping from the pages. We kind of sanitize these accounts and we make it feel like, oh, we're just reading some sort of like fiction narrative. And I want us to carry that feeling into this text because I want us to remember that this was a real person in real space and time who had a real son who was really sick and he came to Jesus in his desperation. Don't miss the humanity. Don't sanitize this passage just because it's printed on a piece of paper. Remember, this is a real person. This happened in real space and time. And this is a moment of real desperation. And young and old, as we look at this text, we can all identify with this passage because we've all experienced times of sorrow and hardship and desperation to where we just feel like we've come to an end of ourselves. But we have a problem in America. We typically don't know what to do with these feelings. And so what we end up doing is we fall back to our default setting, which is busyness and work and effort to try to cover up these feelings. We don't like that feeling of not really knowing what to do and when life gets hard or in these moments of desperation. So we just default back to like redoubling our efforts to try to work our way out of it. It's also why we have a problem praying in our, cult, in our culture. I think Paul Miller mentioned this in his book, A Praying Life. Because he said it doesn't feel like you're really doing anything when you pray and that you're having to rely on someone else. And he's saying why we in the American West, we have such a hard time praying because it doesn't feel like we're doing anything because we like to do. We don't like hearing the words, just wait and trust me and trust that it will get better. Trust that I've got it under control. We don't like hearing those words. We like to do it ourselves. It's hard to put your faith in doctors, nurses, caregivers, etc. when the shadow of death starts to loom on the horizon. Why? Why is that hard to do? Because we know that they're people too. Just like us, they're prone to error. And so we get cynical and we try to start fixing it all ourselves. But I think if we're honest with ourselves, what we really have a problem with is accepting things on faith because by default, that removes our own work and effort from the equation. We don't like to accept things on faith. We like to, okay, I hear that, but then give me 27 things to do on the other side of it. That's why we don't know what to do when we face something that we can't control. We, fear, we feel powerless and we don't like it. But it's often in these moments of helplessness that our faith is strengthened because we come to an end of ourselves and we actually are forced to rely on someone. So take that feeling into the text as we read it this, this morning. John chapter 4, verses, starting in verse 43 to the end of the chapter. Let's give attention to the reading of God's Word. After the two days he departed for Galilee, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. And Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. And as he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, Yesterday at the seventh hour, and the fever left him. The father knew that 
That was the hour when Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. And he himself believed in all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our Lord does indeed stand forever. I'm thankful for the truthfulness of this word. May the Lord bless us and be with us as we open it. Let's pray and ask the Lord's help. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we do need you to speak to our hearts, O Lord. We ask and pray that you would take these words, which are the words of life, and that you would apply them to our hearts. We need you to do that, O Lord. We don't want to do that on our own. And so, Father, would you be pleased, O Lord, to please meet us here and help us to leave and change even in just some small way as we look to your word for truth and for guidance. And may we glorify and honor you. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, as we open up in this passage, I I mentioned earlier, I want you to think about what's something that you were reluctant to bring to Jesus because it seems impossible? Let me say that again. What is something that you are reluctant or have been reluctant to bring to Jesus because on the surface it just seems too impossible? What is making you default to work and busyness instead of resting in the promises of God? What is that, that, this thing this morning that makes you kind of do jumping jacks to prove yourself over here rather than resting in the promises of God? We all have something. As our scene opens this morning in verses 43 and 44, we see Jesus and his disciples leaving the town of Sychar in the region of Samaria after two days ministering to the people there. Most notably the woman at the well and the townspeople who heard her testimony and went to check out Jesus for themselves. And what they do is they leave this town and they head north and they go back to the town of Cana in the region of Galilee. This morning, we're not going to really do any points. I tried to rack my brain about how to like structure this. I know you're thinking, whoa, no points this morning. Okay, it's going to be fine. We're going to make it through together. What we're going to do is we're just going to follow the flow of the narrative and kind of apply as we go along. Okay, so look in verse 45 where we see the Galileans welcoming Jesus and his disciples as they go. The thing that you need to remember is slowly but surely, people throughout the larger region had heard about the signs that Jesus had performed in Cana in Jerusalem, and his popularity began to grow. Like, you know, we live in a small town and stuff travels quickly by word of mouth. That's what's happening. Hey, have you heard about this Jesus guy? And so his popularity is growing in that region, but his popularity also came with an all-too-familiar catch. It revolved more around what Jesus did, his signs, the things that he did, not really around who he claimed to be. So his popularity was growing because of what he did, not because of who he said he was. And that's an all too familiar um, little catch that goes along with this. And in verse 44, we see Jesus aligning himself with the Old Testament prophets who revealed God's will for the people, but were often rejected wherever they went. And you need to know on this verse, entire libraries worth of books have been written on this verse. Okay, And I am not going to bore you with a two-hour excursus on all of this kind of stuff. I mean, there are literally libraries that have been built with the different views on this verse. The thing that I want you to realize is the big idea is that wherever Jesus Jesus goes, he's rejected. He's rejected. That's the big idea. Many today, as we think about this, still crowd around Jesus because of the perceived benefits of being seen with him, not because they actually believe that he is the Messiah. We say that this is false honor that runs out as soon as life gets tough. 
or the prayers seem unanswered. It's an all too familiar thing. We go to Jesus because of what we feel like we can get out of Him, not because of who He actually is. It's like treating Jesus like a vending machine. You go and you put your effort or you put your sacrifices or you put your religious performance in the coin slot. You push the button and the prize pops out. Look, oh Lord, look at what I've done for you or I believe this and so I'm going to do that and I want this one. And then we wait for the prize to pop out. What we're doing is what happens is Jesus gets treated like a means to an end rather than the end in and of himself. He is the end in and of himself. Not just a means to an end. He is Jesus the Lord, the Messiah. He is the end of it, in and of Himself. Look at verse 46. You see this crowd that's coming and they're, they're wanting to come and gather around Jesus because they've heard of what He has, has done. And in the midst of this, one man stands out from the crowd. It's this official um, from Capernaum. And so you see there He came to Cana in Galilee where He had made water wine. Remember, we looked at that several weeks ago. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. And this man was likely an official in Herod Antipas' court. And by anyone's standards, he had the power and money to get whatever he wanted. This is a rich, wealthy, powerful guy. He could usually, with the wave of a hand, get whatever he wanted until he was confronted with something that he couldn't control. In an act of desperation, he made the 18-mile trip from Capernaum to Galilee. We think, that oh, he just walked outside his front door and, hey, there's Jesus. No, this is an 18-mile trip that he made to go down to Cana to find Jesus because his son was gravely ill. And as we've heard and other commentators are saying, this is the, the child had a really high fever. Notice this nobleman went by himself. He did not send a servant. He went himself to go and find Jesus. It was that desperate. And when he gets there, he finds the son of a poor carpenter because he believed that Jesus could help save his son. And in verse 47, we see what happens when this man comes and finds Jesus. That when this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. Now that Greek word that's translated asked in the ESV is the Greek word eritao. And it's better translated beseeched begged, entreated. It's much more urgent than just asking. It is begging Jesus to come. And so it is this persistence and simply it's, it's a more persistent and urgent verb that's going on here. And so I want you to imagine the scene. I want you to imagine this powerful, rich, wealthy man probably dressed in fine clothing on his knees begging Jesus to come and help. On his knees, begging and pleading, please, Jesus, come and please heal my son. In that moment, the robes kind of fade away. And what you have here is a father pleading on behalf of his son. At that moment, the robes don't matter. We're just, it's one guy talking to another guy as a father, please hear me. Please come and save my son. That's why I didn't want you to divorce that feeling of helplessness from the text. You have this guy coming and begging Jesus. It's how I felt in my glide rocker of my son's room, just pleading with God to help because I felt so powerless. Lord, please help. I've said before that one of the most honest prayers you can pray is, Lord, help me. Lord, help me. That's what's going on here in this text. And look at verse 48 as we continue on. 
On the surface, Jesus' response feels so cold after this man pours out his heart. He's like, please come and help. Look at Jesus' response. So Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. On the feeling, that just seems so cold and indifferent. But it makes more sense in the original Greek because the word you there is actually plural. It's actually y'all. Okay? So it's a plural there. And so... This is similar to his reply to his mother when she asked for help with wine at the wedding feast. The nobleman then becomes a representative of the sign-seeking Galileans thronging to him like some sort of carnival sideshow. So again, it's like he says, unless y'all see signs and wonders, you will not believe. This man just kind of becomes a stand-in for this entire crowd that's just flocking to Jesus because he's like some sort of sideshow. And it just makes a lot more sense when you see and understand the plural. And he sees the weakness of their faith and he wants them to desire a relationship with him. And Jesus wants them to trust in his self-identification as the Messiah more than just sensationalism. And Jesus offers a rebuke for those who are looking for a wonder worker. But don't miss the grace that he shows this man. Instead of shooing the man away like, oh, get away. You're only looking for this sign. Instead of shooing the man away, Jesus decides to use the very sign he was seeking as the instrument to reach this guy's heart. And notice the man did not talk down to Jesus like, what do you mean? Do you not know who I am? How dare you say that to me? I'm an official in Herod's court. He doesn't do any of that. He doesn't talk down to Jesus. He doesn't fight back. He doesn't try to defend himself. Notice what he does. He continues to plead with Jesus for help. He knows that Jesus is his only hope. Look in verse 49. He says, the official said to him again, Sir, come down before my child dies. Like, Jesus, feel the weight of what I'm asking you here. Remember, it's a guy pleading pleading for the life of his son. He's about to die, Jesus. Please come down. You're my only hope. It seems like such an impossible thing to bring to Jesus, but he knows that Jesus is capable of accomplishing something because he heard about it from others. Look at verse 50, the first half of verse 50. Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. It's amazing. But I want you to think about what Jesus doesn't give him. He doesn't give him what he's actually seeking, which is an on-site visit. Remember, he's saying, Jesus, come with me. Let's go together. He doesn't give him that. What he does is give him something better. He gives him his word with full power to heal. But it had to be received by faith. Jesus says, go, your son will live. That word was fully powerful to heal, as we see that it actually did. But it had to be received by faith, didn't it? Now I want you to put yourself in this official sandals. How would you have responded? After a long journey on foot, 18 miles, you've just humbled yourself before a poor carpenter's son with your robes, pleaded with him to come back with you and save your son, who you know is in the active process of dying 18 miles away. Put yourself in his shoes. Instead of being met with, yes, okay, let's leave right now. I'll come back with you. I'll tell my disciples to hold down the fort. Yes, let's go right now. Instead of that, you hear, go. Go home. Your son will live. Instead of a calling to more doing, it's a call to faith, even with what seems impossible. That's a big deal. Look at the second half of verse 50. 
You see, something happens in this guy's heart. See what he says? The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. Something happened in this man's heart as he came face to face with Jesus. He believed that Jesus who was who he actually said he was, which is the Messiah. And he trusted him by faith alone. He gets up. His response to Jesus' words is very telling. He stops pleading. He immediately starts the journey back home because he believed the promise of the Messiah. There was something about Jesus and the word that he heard spoken that spoke to his heart and changed him. And he knew there's something different about this guy. And he believed who he said he was and trusted him by faith. Look at verses 51 and through 54. Jesus was true to his word and all of this was confirmed as the man's servants found him on the road home. I mean, imagine the kid starts getting better. And what do the servants want to do? They want to go and tell the guy, look, he's getting better. And so they, they kind of meet on the road and they have this discussion and they told him the good news. And the man came to Jesus with empty hands and by faith left with something greater than all of his wealth and power. He left with salvation as he trusted Christ by faith. And this salvation, did it just stay with him? No. Look what happened. It's him and his whole household. His whole household believed. Imagine the testimony of this guy as he comes back. I saw this guy, Jesus, and he spoke this word to me. And I found out on the way home the very hour that he said that my son would live was the very moment that my son started getting better. This man is the Messiah. And we trust him by faith. It's an amazing picture when you think about it, when you kind of get up underneath it. But the application point here this morning is, which promise of your Savior do you still doubt even when it looks impossible? What is it? Which promise of your Savior do you still doubt even when it's impossible? Let me give you a couple. Maybe His promise to save you if you come to Him by faith, even if your life is a wreck. You think, He couldn't possibly be gracious to me. I'm in that big of a mess. Do you doubt that one this morning? Do you doubt His promise to never leave you nor forsake you? Do you doubt His promise to give you the Holy Spirit as a comforter when life gets hard? Do you doubt His promise that He's using even the hardest of current circumstances to make us more like Himself and more fit for eternity with Him? Do you not see or do you doubt the fact that God is using even the hard places in your life to make you more and more like His image? Do you doubt His promise to always preserve His bride, the church, despite the attacks of hell at its gates? Do you doubt His promise to fully forgive you of your sin as far as the east is from the west? Remember, we talked about that earlier. When you come in repentance and faith. Do you doubt His promise to restore broken relationships and bind up old wounds that you may have? Do you doubt the fact that He could really change those and restore them? Do you doubt His promise to call every one of His sheep to Himself in His due time and according to His perfect will, and that not a single one who has been given to Him will ever be lost, even the ones who are far off? Do you doubt that promise? Do you doubt His promise to finish the good work He started in you at the moment of your conversion despite your constant struggle with sin and temptation? Do you doubt His promise that full atonement has been made when He cried, It is finished on the cross? How about His promise to return again in glory as a conquering king and defeat all of His enemies? How about His promise that heaven will be a place that has no more sadness, sickness, pain, or death? How about His promise that He's the good shepherd, that He's the resurrection and the life? That He is the way, the truth, and the life. And that no man comes to the Father except through Him. 
How about His promise that He has a plan for you and is at work in you? How about His promise that that His righteous kingdom is already broken into our fallen, broken world and that nothing can stop it despite what it may look like in the midst of a watching and scornful world? Which of those sturdy promises of our Lord do you still doubt when He asks you to trust Him by faith? Which of those promises do you think He won't fully keep? Which promise has He not kept in the past that makes you doubt whether He will continue to keep His Word? The Lord has been faithful to His Word up until this point. And He says, I will do this, trust me by faith. If He has been faithful thus far, why will He not be faithful on into the future, even when things look contrary to that? I want to ask you the question this morning, what are you really putting your faith in when you stop making yourself busy with the narcotic of endless doing for 10 minutes and actually examine your life? What are you really putting your faith in? What is that thing? Is it the work of politicians, your bank account, your family name, your grades, your religious performance, your position of influence, your social circle, your own efforts, whatever it is? What is that thing that you really put your faith in when the rubber hits the road and when life gets hard? What is it? I'll tell you what it is for me. It's me just working hard and doing it. I put my faith in my own efforts. And I can tell you that they don't last very long because I get tired and I get worn out. But really, when I think about it, when the rubber gets the road, hits the road, that's what I do. That's my default setting. Buckle up the chin strap, keep plowing ahead, rather than resting in Christ. But as we think about what that thing might actually be, which of those, the ones that I named and maybe the one that you're thinking about, which of those will actually outlive the grave? Which of those will actually have the power to heal you from the thing that's actually killing you? Which is sin. Which of those things actually has the power to deliver you? It's not politicians. It's not grades. It's not your effort. None of those things. What are the, what, which of those things do you think will outlast you and can actually conquer the grave? As we hear these promises, as I went through them, if you are here this morning and you do not trust Christ by faith alone as your Savior and Lord, these are not your promises. They're not. You are walking through life without a Savior, without a shepherd, without being under the umbrella of the finished work of Christ on the cross for you. His words, it is finished. If you do not trust Him by faith, those are not your promises. And you still stand under the wrath of God because your sin has not been dealt with. And you're still trying to live life on your own and still trying to live as though you're your own little lowercase g God. And let me warn you as a minister of the gospel, it's not going to work out the way that you think it is. Many of you in this room have tried. We still try, don't we, to live our lives apart from God. That's why we have to confess it every single week. It's not going to work out the way that you think it is. Flee to Christ. Turn from your sin with empty hands as you hear the Good Shepherd calling you to His self. We already sang this morning, Come ye sinners, poor and needy, weak and wounded, sick and sore, Jesus ready stands to save you, full of pity, love and power. It also says, let not conscience make you linger. That means, oh, he, could, he couldn't possibly love somebody like me. Nor of fitness fondly dream. That doesn't mean physical fitness. That means I've done what I need to check my card to be able to say, look, Jesus, I'm bringing my righteousness to you. It says, nor of fit, fitness fondly dream. You can't earn it. You can't check the boxes enough. You're already behind the eight ball. It's over. All the fit 
witness He requires is to feel your need of Him. That's it. We said the church and the mob are the only two places that you have to admit that you're bad to actually get in, right? It's one of the vows that we take when we join the church. Do you believe that you are a sinner in the sight of a holy God? And aside from His pardoning mercy, you stand under His wrath and judgment. You have to take that vow and you have to say, yes, I believe that about myself. That's number one. All the fitness He requires is to feel your need of Him. If you are here and you trust Christ, let me remind you that every bit of it's true. His grace is real. The gospel is true. The tomb is empty. Your Savior lives. And He promises to keep you safe in Him until He returns in glory or calls you home. It's true. Every bit of it's true. You're like, oh, well, you're a preacher. You're supposed to say that. I'm supposed to remind you of that. It's true. Every bit of it's true. All of these promises. He said, I will never leave you or forsake you. It is finished. Your sin has been dealt with. I will walk with you as your good shepherd until the very end of the dead. The very hair of, the very number of the hairs on your head have been set. And I will carry you all the way to the end. And all of your sin has been dealt with because you couldn't deal with it yourself. And so I have taken it upon myself. I have done the hard work of atonement for you. And I ask you to trust me by faith. Ladies and gentlemen, if you are here and you trust Christ, again, I have good news. Every bit of that's true. And we rest in the gospel. It's it's a reason to get up in the morning. It's not a checklist. What if I sent you out of here and said, here's ten things that you need to be doing to increase your spiritual life. You know, you wouldn't even make it out of the parking lot for a few forgot half of them. So what's the big thing I'm asking you to do this morning? Because we're all still Americans and that's what we want to do, right? What's the one big thing that I'm asking you to do this morning? It's the title of this message. Believe the word that's been spoken to you. Trust it. Where do you find that word? The Bible. Stop trying to figure out life on your own and trust the word that has already been given to you. Open that thing up. Remind yourself of the promises of God and keep trusting and resting in Christ. That's what I'm asking you to do. Keep trusting, keep resting, believe the word that has been spoken to you because every bit of it's true. Believe that word. But you might think, okay, well, what sign do we have? What sign does Christ give us now to assure us that he will be faithful to keep his word? Ladies and gentlemen, the table. It's right here. How do we know that Christ is going to be faithful? What sign does He give us to help us to see as we come to Him and say, give us a sign. What sign does He give us? Right here. The table. So let's come to the table, shall we? Okay? Musicians, whenever y'all can move your way on up. The Lord knows that we are fickle and forgetful people. That we, we need to be reminded of Christ's return because we forget His grace and mercy. I do. You do too. So He's given us this physical reminder. This is a good gift given to us by a loving God. And as we come to the table, please know this is not a table for perfect people. This is for those who see their sin and for those who see their need for a Savior. This table is for Christians who seek and look to Jesus alone for faith, by faith for salvation. This is also for members in good standing of any evangelical church that preaches the true gospel of Jesus Christ. This is not the PCA's table. This is the Lord's table. And so if you are here this morning and you attend a different church, welcome. We're glad you're here. And if your church is, is teaching and preaching the true gospel, if you believe it, that you're a sinner, 
in desperate need of a Savior, and that Jesus alone is that Savior, and you trust Him by grace alone, through faith alone, and not your own efforts, and He is your only hope, then this table is for you, ladies and gentlemen. And that's good news. We're glad that you're here. But if you're not a Christian, feel no pressure to participate, as Paul warns us in 1 Corinthians 11, to examine ourselves and to be discerning of Christ's sacrifice in His body and blood. 1 Corinthians 11, 28-29, Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. If you are here, and you do not trust Christ as your Savior, if you do not see yourself as a sinner, we would ask you, humbly ask you, please stay away, but don't stay away from all. But don't eat and drink judgment upon yourself. We're not taking attendance. There's no hidden camera. We're just asking you, please stay away. You should have received a packet containing the elements as you came in, this little thing, which, Lord willing, will be the last month we use these, okay? But you should have received that as you came in. And I want to just give you a little, you know, don't do it with me right now, okay? The top little clear one gets you to the wafer, and then the big one on the bottom gets you to the juice, okay? Be careful with that. If you need a hand doing any of this, if you need a handful of the big, just slip your hand up. Somebody will come over and help you. We will, we will get you... The help that you need, and no big deal. Christ calls us to come and to feed on Him and find grace through Him. And please note, as we sing the closing song, feel free to listen, pray, sing along, and take the elements in your seat whenever you're ready. Please note that we're going to be including an instrumental verse. You'll see it labeled there in your bulletin. If that's the time that you would prefer to take it there, then please feel free to. But if you want to take it earlier or whatever, that's okay. That's up to you. And so take it whenever you're ready. Again, if you need any help, just slip your hand up. An elder or somebody else will come around and help you out. No big deal. Christ calls us to come and to feed on Him, to find grace through Him. This bread and this cup are signs, signs and seals of the covenant of grace. They point beyond themselves. They point beyond to the covenant of grace and our covenant Lord. And so we offer this covenant meal to you as we minister in Christ's name in the church. Here now the words of institution from 1 Corinthians 11, that on the night he was betrayed, Jesus took bread and he blessed it and he broke it and he said, Take and eat, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup and he said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he returns. Let's pray together. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we come into your presence after hearing and being reminded of the richness of your gospel, that all of it's true. We're thankful, O Lord, that you're a covenant-making and a covenant-keeping God, and we pray that you would grant us access to the throne of grace. We ask and pray that you would set apart these humble elements for a holy use. Remind us of your grace and seal it into our hearts, O Lord, as we taste and see that you are good. And we're reminded of all the gospel promises that find their yes and amen in Christ as we're reminded of the cross. And so, O oh Lord, we ask and pray that you would meet us here, seal that grace, and remind us of it deeply into our hearts and help us to rejoice in you. We pray and ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.